0: You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network.
1: This podcast is brought to you in association with BHA Medical. BHA Medical source, supply, implement and innovate medical technology solutions across the globe. BHA provide market-leading services in COVID-19 testing kits, medical products, smart technology and consultancy. One of the latest solutions that BHA Medical offer is the iMed end-to-end COVID-19 testing and monitoring solution. NPH iMed is an end-to-end COVID-19 testing monitoring solution that is developed in partnership with BHA Medical to assist in collating and managing test results, reopening travel, leisure, events and entertainment. NPH Group have simplified the process of reporting test result data for you through our online platform, which makes capturing the required data for submission easy, whilst it, or easily also recalling individuals for repeat testing and submission. NPH have created a fully compliant and automatic upload capability, so you don't have to worry about it with a cost effective solution. Please head over to the show notes for further details. So welcome back to the pre-hospital care podcast with myself, phone Walker. In this episode, um, we're going to be looking at part two of Surviving Cardiac Arrest with Zoe Hitchcock. So what I wanted to do is release the second part of this two-part series around Surviving Cardiac Arrest and just tell Zoe's organic story. Uh, I interviewed Zoe for the podcast in one of the earlier episodes and we'll link that into the show notes as well. So I wanted just to delay releasing this episode in wake of the current uh, passing of the Queen and just how difficult that's been for the nation and indeed for everyone really. This is a second episode in two parts whereby we just drill into the patient's organic story and again it's something I really want to bring out in, in, in this podcast is having the patient's story unfold because that's really why I think we all joined the job in the first place. So on reflection, this story together with Noah's story in Surviving Cardiac Arrest Part 1 really gives a semblance of how precious life is and on the back of a cardiac arrest of how there is a massive perspective change. I think this really comes through in the episode. So Zoe nine years ago in 2013 had a cardiac arrest whilst walking down Oxford Street in London. So Zoe suffered um, a cardiac myopathy causing a VF arrest and again the adage that it takes a system to save a life truly came into focus on that day. So I was part of this uh, resuscitation attempt, uh, successful attempt and indeed uh, was part of the team that first got to Zoe um, as a first responder. But what I wanted to do, instead of labor the actual incident in detail, just look at Zoe's first-hand experience of both pre and post events, And panning back almost 10 years now from the initial events and getting her perspective across the the last 10 years of life um, migrating away from that cardiac arrest and how it's changed her life, the turning point, the perspective change and indeed just her reflections. So please do enjoy the episode, Um, please do rate and review the podcast, Uh, feel free to jump over to the website to leave any feedback and also just to say that I've actually interviewed three cardiac arrest survivors and I'm going to be editing them together for the Restore podcast and putting them out um, as a sort of a mix, one episode um, just from three different perspectives around surviving cardiac arrest and just get reflections from all three cardiac arrest survivors. Okay, enough for me. Uh, Here's Zoe.
0: So um, before that very fateful day, i have got married uh, to my lovely husband, Phil, about six months before. And um, starting the year, um, everything was was great. You know, we were very excited about what was ahead. Even thinking back then, like, you know, we just married, like, when will we start a family? Um, And then, unfortunately, at work, I went through a bit of a difficult time um government cuts I worked for the police um and very fortunately um managed to keep my job role but as a result of that um ended up in a in a different role and because of that change found myself in London on the day of my cardiac arrest so um I think it was probably pretty fated that I was um I was there um and yeah very fortunately because I was on the busiest street um in London I got help very quickly when I collapsed
1: could you maybe just speak to how for example if you were running to get fill some shoes actually on that day and um what's sort of the last thing you remember Zoe and and indeed so the last thing you remember pre-incident and then the first thing you remember post-incident if that if that's okay
0: yeah so I've got um, like a really strong memory of driving um, to police headquarters and I don't know if it was like that day or like maybe a day that week but I remember like like driving to work singing along in the car I remember the song that was playing on the radio I won't sing that now I'll save you from it but um, yeah that's like really strong in my mind and from the day I know this is from the day I, I've kind of got a hazy memory of a conversation I had with a colleague at a meeting um that I'd gone to um near Wood Street near Moorgate and um I know that I left that meeting and I went to Oxford Street and I was probably a little bit rushed for time because I was trying to get back for an evening commitment and um I didn't tell anyone I was going there I'd gone there to buy Phil the Jordans who'd wanted since he was 13 for his birthday and um, yeah so nobody knew I was there and um, I'm not sure if I do remember or I've tried to remember kind of that last journey from walking from Oxford Circus like up Oxford Street. I've done it a number of times since but there's a part of me that kind of like feels that maybe i felt like i needed to sit down and i was maybe like looking for like one of the seats along there um but i i I just don't know how accurate that is and i feel like i don't remember anything else about what happened probably because my brain is trying to protect me from any of the horror of what unfolded or because literally i went into shutdown and i don't remember it for that reason
1: and i don't think it's too uncommon actually to have this sort of um sort of cardiac arrest amnesia and to have uh post event amnesia actually and just to really not not have uh, a a real clear timeline or sequence of, of 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 events after interviewing a number of cardiac arrest survivors i think this seems to be sort of a commonality really um could you sort of speak to because I, I and it was such a seminal event sorry and you know just I think put a lot of things in perspective from for you that you spoke about quite candidly on the last episode um could you maybe just speak to sort of the critical chain of survival that was in place for you at the time because we spoke about the police and then obviously we turned up and then HEMS the helicopter emergency yeah. medical service turned up could you could you sort of maybe speak to that sequence of chain of survival from your perspective
0: yeah, so I was so incredibly lucky um, that I got um help and attention straight away. And actually, as you know, before the two police officers came to help me, I'd had CPR by then from at least three other members of the public. Um and one of the police officers that gave me CPR, um, his CPR training was second to none, he he'd been in the army his stamina was everything that i needed and he really did like fight and give it his all to to try and um get me back and keep me alive um the fact that you were able to come to me on a bicycle um and race there you know london's so busy with traffic and you were able to bypass all of that um, I know you said like buses and stuff are like stopping and literally flagging you down and saying like she's over there because like people very, um, they, they realised the seriousness of what was what was happening and that you weren't and that defib was was needed. Um, if I had perhaps taken the train straight home on that day and fallen into cardiac arrest on the train or if I'd have been local to where I live in Hertfordshire I would not have got the same response. You know, I could have, it's not like massively rural where I live, but it's much quieter than London and I could have collapsed in the street and wouldn't have got CPR straight away. There wouldn't be a paramedic able to come to me on a bike. There probably wouldn't be an ambulance that could have got to me so quickly. Um, There aren't enough ambulances um, as it is. Um, And I certainly wouldn't have got probably um, a HEMS team coming and really um that's something that I you know the the whole sequence of events but I really do believe that because I was able to have the cooling agent treatment that only a doctor could give um at the roadside I really do feel that that's been critical to the way I've been able to recover and fully recover um because I would say that because of the way I've been able to like go on and live my life since I feel fully recovered um you know I've not sustained any um heart damage any brain injury um I am as I was before apart from now I've got this like little guardian angel ICD so um yeah, in, incredibly lucky um to have been where I was and for the sequence of events to have unfolded in the way that they did. Um I've said it before, but the stars definitely aligned for me that day.
1: So Zoe, just looking retrospectively, sort of at your post cardiac arrest recovery in Hammersmith Hospital, so if you could, I wonder if you could just um, unpack for listeners your the support you received from family and friends at the time, and and indeed Phil, because I'm um, you know you speak of this post event amnesia and I think it must be greatly distressing just not being able to piece together initially what's happened and indeed quite the gravity of 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 sort of what's what's Mm -hmm. what's happened could you could you maybe just speak to the the social and family support and indeed how how the time of sort of convalescence and recovery was for you
0: yeah so I had um three days uh, thereabouts in a, in an induced coma, and um, when I was brought round, um, my family I won't go into this too much, but they were told that there could be a risk of brain damage. And when I first did come come round, um, I wasn't able to shape my mouth to make words, so basically it was just like noise that was coming out. And I was very agitated because I'd been brought around quite quickly. I was waving my arms around, and my family thinking, "Oh my goodness, she's like brain damaged." Um, it was just like the the worst um, the worst feeling for them in in those moments they were so thankful that I'd survived but were then thinking oh god like what life will be ahead of her um, but actually very quickly within a few hours I was able to communicate um, through like um, uh, signaling with my eyes blinking um, which for them kind of told them that I was in there and as the hours passed um, and through some sleep, um, eventually woke and then was able to to talk. Um, my mum did not leave my bedside the whole time I was in hospital. I was there for two weeks. She was, as you know, there the whole time. And that was, I mean, just I look back and I think like, God, it, shit, it must have just been so awful for her in mean, dealing with what she was kind of like witnessing and, and seeing and then me coming around from the coma and and not um and not and and seeming like i was brain damaged it just must have been like the absolute worst um but she um yeah she didn't leave my side and she the one time she did was during the night when i woke up and um i said to the doctor like where am I and he said oh do you know don't worry don't worry you've had a you've had a cardiac arrest but you're in hospital and I don't remember this again it's like the post-traumatic amnesia um, and then my mum came back and um, she was explaining to me what had happened I went to sleep I wake up again and I was like where am I and it it like kept happening like that and um, I know bless you that you came to meet me at the hospital And that was really important, actually, um, to my family, um, because it was such a wonderful opportunity to be able to thank you. We got to meet that first time. um, But also the the team there, they were able to understand a bit more about what had happened to better help the care and and treatment um, going and, you know, tests and stuff going forward. Um, But I don't remember our first meeting. um, And again, I think it's that, like, Post-traumatic amnesia. So when I look back, um it sounds kind of a bit messed up to say, because obviously it was a very traumatic experience for my family. But for me, when I wake up, all of that trauma was over. And I just had this loving family around me and the most incredible support. And I look back on it um, with really fond memories. Um I just feel so lucky that I got the treatment and the care that I did. The staff in the hospital, like every single one of them that I came into contact from, the lunch lady to the cardiologist consultant in charge, like every single person played a part in in that kind of recovery journey. And um, yeah, really thankful.
1: So sorry, how has life been um, since the since the implanted defibrillator or the ICD how has it sort of changed the way that you exercise or indeed the way you approach physical activity how how has um, how has sort of the transition been so
0: um when I first came out of hospital um I did um I did struggle with my fitness um I couldn't walk a few steps before I felt exhausted And I think I might have said this in the last podcast, but like Phil was great in kind of like helping to train me back to some kind of fitness. And we'd just go out like every day and he'd walk me a little bit further down the road until I could walk around the whole block. Um, I did some physio locally um, and some cardiac rehab physio and it just, it wasn't up to it. Um, You know, I hate to like sit and be negative about any aspect of the the NHS, but um, it was unfortunately really quite poor they weren't prepared to deal with um they were used to dealing with much older patients and they weren't geared up to deal with somebody like me who one had a cardiac arrest not a heart attack um but two who had a real like zest for life and really wanted to get back to some kind of um fitness i'd sustained um some rib damage as part of the CPR. And um, that aggravated, that was quite aggravating and causing me a lot of shoulder pain. And I'd lost a lot of like flexion and movement. I couldn't basically like lift my arm up properly. Um, And so I needed like proper rehab for that. My London cardiologist was incredible, um, Dr. at Hammersmith, and she sent me to Charing Cross to have some rehabilitation there and the guy in charge there Nigel he and the team were absolutely outstanding and it was um everything that I needed it to be and gave me the most amount of confidence um and actually when I finished the program there I can't remember how long it was it might have been like six weeks a couple of months and um When I finished the program there, I was kind of like doing interval training, like down at the local lakes here. And I say the lakes and it makes it sound flat, but actually there's like a slight hilly area. And like I'd be there with Phil, like first thing in the morning, like running up and down the lakes and thinking like, wow, I can't believe like I can do this. Um, Because in that early recovery, I didn't imagine that I'd ever get to the point where I was either physically fit enough or confident enough to do it. But wearing a heart monitor and just listening to the way my body felt and also going by my experience at that Charing Cross rehabilitation. um, Yeah, it just basically um, made me feel really empowered to take control of my own fitness again and um and just to be fit but I've learned I really hate running <laughs> for years like before the cardiac arrest and even after it like I'd be like oh running's a really good thing to do to look keep fit I really don't enjoy it so <laughs> nowadays actually I, I don't bother um I prefer I love dancing um you know, like, and I could do a night at the Ministry of Sound and uh, like dance all night and still be tired the next day, like any other like person would be. But, um, but yeah, I, the ICD has given me confidence um to live my life, and I think because I know it's there as a backup, um, and it has been used as a backup since since the cardiac arrest. Um, yeah, I I feel safe. To um to exercise and to to carry on living normally.
1: So looking at life post two thousand thirteen and post the event, uh, and now indeed you have a little daughter as well. So you have a family. How has your perspective changed uh, since the event?
0: I've always been the sort of person that lives life to the full, and um, I you know I don't take anything like for granted. But even more so now. Um, I suppose since having Poppy, like, I feel a little bit more, in in all honesty, I feel a little bit more wobbly, like, about what happened, Um, and I think that's because um, where I didn't look back and I just look forward, um, now I'm like, there is a risk, like, to me through having this condition, um, and I want to keep myself, like, safe and well for her, so I know that, like, next um not next summer probably the summer after my ICD will need to be replaced it's a really standard procedure you know they do lots of these I was fine when I had it done before but because I've got her now I'm like oh my goodness will I be okay um I will be but um but yeah I suppose that's kind of um that's kind of changed things a little bit But because of having her and, um, you know, I'm happy to share that it wasn't the easiest journey to have her, not because of my heart condition, but just because it wasn't. She took a long time. It was our third IVF. So she's so incredibly precious. And my time with her is so incredible incredibly precious so I really just try and make the most of I mean people tell you when you become a parent to like do that anyway because it goes so quickly and it does she's two and a half now and I'm like oh, I can't believe she's two and a half already but I really just try and make the most of time um with her um and Phil you know our, our whole family like as a as a unit, because you just never know and that might be taken away from you. Anything could happen to any, any one of us. Um, so yeah, I suppose I, it's always there in the back of my mind.
1: So Zoe, looking at the importance of teaching CPR and sort of CPR from a, uh, a skill perspective from in schools and indeed maybe community centers and as a national initiative, uh, it, Has it changed the way that you see the importance of CPR?
0: Um, I'm delighted that now it's on the school curriculum. Um, I know that recently um, through parents of, um, very sadly, um, a young teenager who lost their life at school when they had a cardiac arrest because a, a defib wasn't available they've campaigned to get defibs in schools and that's now that's now being pushed out that's happening so I'm so pleased to have seen that progress in you know like over the last nine years but, um because when it happened for me that was non that was non-existent um and it was something that I felt really passionate about So I'm really pleased now that things have moved on so much. CPR is so crucial. Um, If I hadn't got CPR straight away, I might not have survived. And if I had, my life might look very differently. Um, So, yeah, it's like the first part in the chain of events. Um, I said on the last podcast, but I know when I had my cardiac arrest, survival rates for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest was 8.4%. I think now it's like one in 10 people survive, that's still so incredibly low. Um, But hopefully through more people becoming aware of CPR, through kids learning it at school and getting the confidence to give someone CPR if they needed to, that will change things. I actually met, um, I had a blood test a few months ago, and this amazing lady who did it for me, she told me that she'd given CPR to four people, um, in her lifetime um 50 50 like survival rate two of them died two of them survived but you just think wow if that woman (laughs) can come into contact with like four people who needed CPR um yeah so hopefully things will change and and for the positive
1: so Zoe as we come into land on the conversation just from a take-home perspective could you maybe just speak to two to three take-home messages that you'd like to confer to others
0: so I know this podcast is mainly aimed at first responders, but if there's anyone um, listening to this, like me, Joe Public, who perhaps don't know how to give CPR, please go and learn or even look at the British Heart Foundation website to get some tips for them, because you really can change the outcome of somebody's life if you're able to um, to give them CPR. Um, and take home messages, I suppose, um. One of the things um, for me that is different since my cardiac arrest is, um, I suppose, and you know, maybe some people listen to this will think, well, actually, that sounds a little bit negative, but before I was always so much of a people pleaser, and um, now I try and live my life um, where, you know, kindly, so not like hurting anybody, but also to like like please myself if there's something that I really don't want to do or if I feel like I'm a bit overwhelmed with commitments I will say no to stuff um because before uh, and I think you know it's maybe why what happened that day happened um I was just too busy rushing around like doing stuff um so yeah slow down if you need to slow down like listen listen to yourself and slow down um and then finally just like don't Just don't take anything for granted. I have to remind myself of that too, you know, because I get caught up in the whole, like, um, treadmill of life. Um, But I have to remind myself, like, don't take anything for granted and um, enjoy the here and now and enjoy the simple pleasures in life. And for me, like, they're what brings... Most happiness.
1: Zoe, listen, that's fantastic, and just a really, really nice way to to finish the conversation. I think what we'll do is put the links to the other conversation in the show notes, so people can have a deep dive on the incident itself and your reflections from the incident. um Just so that um, so there's there's some marriage between between the two episodes. Um, but I just want to say thank you to you. Really, it's I think for me, uh, both as a clinician, sort of twenty years practice, but also just over time you've just been a constant reminder of the good that can come of from clinical practice and actually that, that, that these concepts do work in the right conditions and for the right patients and so yeah just thank you for a being you but b just being a source of inspiration to, to me and others because it's uh, it's been truly powerful
0: bless you gosh don't she'll make me start crying (laughs) um i mean you know how thankful i am i am for you um i wouldn't be here if it wasn't for you and um you are so special um you're so special to me phil my family um and always will be um thank you so much and thank you for allowing me to come back and um and and chat a bit more i hope this has been okay You're listening to the Pre-Hospital Care Podcast on the Medics Academy Network.